0: Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekend. I'm Alison Kaplan-Summer and joining me in the studio for this very special interview is my colleague, the host of Haaretz Weekly, Amir T-Bone. He'll introduce our very special guest.
1: Our guest today is Susan Glaser, a staff writer for The New Yorker, author of the Letter from Washington column and one of the most interesting journalists to read in these dramatic times. It's an honor to have her on the podcast. Hi, Susan.
0: Hi there. Thanks so much for having me. Susan, as Amir said, you are better qualified probably than anybody to comment on the lifetimes and current behavior of Russian President Vladimir Putin. You were among the first journalists that Putin met in the Kremlin in the year 2000. And from 2001 to 2004, you were the Moscow bureau chief for the Washington Post, together with your husband, Peter Baker. Tell me about your impressions of his rise to power and how russia changed during the putin years and was this road to where we are now to this uh, terrible invasion which i think we can all agree has resulted in some of the worst war crimes we've seen in many 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 years at all foreseeable is this something that somebody who has watched putin for so long says yes this is where the road was heading or were you as surprised as much as the rest of the world
2: it's something i've wrestled with a lot obviously having observed Putin closely over the last more than 20 years. Amazingly, you know, he is the longest serving Russian leader, I should point out, since Joseph Stalin, and he's still just turning 70. So he's not potentially done yet for quite some time, which is is really striking. And when I arrived in Moscow as a young foreign correspondent for the Post, no one would have foreseen that, that Putin would have lasted so long and done what he's done, that actually would have been astonishing to any observer of Russia if you could time travel back to 2000. He was an obscure former KGB lieutenant colonel from the mean streets of what was then Leningrad then St. Petersburg. He had risen outside of the KGB or potentially not in the, the rebranded FSB that's the domestic successor to the KGB post-Soviet Union. He was the head of the FSB. And and then within this extraordinary short time, he became Russian prime minister to an ailing, aging Boris Yeltsin and used a war, the second war in Chechnya, essentially to vault to public known and popularity that he then was the springboard for this extraordinary rise in less than a year to be the president of Russia. Remember on the dramatic New Year's Eve of the millennium when Boris Yeltsin surprised the world by resigning his position and giving it to Vladimir Putin. And then the election of Vladimir Putin, March 2000, was essentially a rubber stamp at that point. And that's the first time that I went to Moscow and began to cover and to try to understand this Putin phenomenon.
1: Can you share with us maybe a specific conversation with him from those years some interaction that showed you the character of this man that now the whole world is asking what does he want what is he trying to achieve
2: i do think some of the portrayals right now are a bit misleading this idea that you know perhaps putin just woke up and became unhinged or crazy there are absolutely through lines that suggest to me that this is the same person that we saw 20 years ago, but after 20 years of increasing power and isolation and almost fantasies of the resurrection of the Soviet Union. And so the Putin, of 2000, 2001 that we first encountered absolutely was in the memorable words actually of the former US Vice President Dick Cheney to one of my colleagues, KGB, KGB, KGB. And there were many who misrepresented him here in Washington, as well as in other world capitals. And they foolishly, as it turns out, and hindsight saw somehow the contours of a, a Western oriented reformer. And that was because Putin was much younger, than Boris Yeltsin, he was not an alcoholic. He was spoke a foreign language, German, which is where he'd been posted as a KGB agent, had a different outlook, they thought.
1: It reminds a bit of the discussions about the uh... One of his allies and a dictator closer to us, Israel, Bashar al-Assad, who was also described early on as some kind of a Western-minded reformer who will take Syria to the future. When I heard you talk about Putin that way, I thought, you know, these two leaders really did not do what uh, some of those people expected they would.
2: That's actually a very interesting analogy. Now, of course, Putin is not a generational heir to the country, right? He comes from literally nowhere, essentially was a street hoodlum in Leningrad, so a very different background than Assad, but I think you're right in that comparison. Certainly, Putin was very misread initially. And so when I was there, the first time I met with Putin was with a small group of other American correspondents. We were the first American correspondents to be summoned to the Kremlin to meet with Vladimir Putin. This was after his famous initial meeting with George W. Bush, when Bush looked into his soul and saw a man he could do business with. right? And so there was certainly a different foreign policy approach by Putin at that time. It turns out to have been an approach, by the way, born of Russian weakness and a sense of what they had to do at that moment. So we're summoned to the Kremlin. We sat around a round table in the Kremlin library, two-story wood-paneled library room, Late at night, Putin, like many <laughs> potentates, you know, in the Arab world, prefers to do his business late at night. Of course, very late. We we're on Putin time, so I think it was well after 8 p.m. when this session began, and we actually didn't leave until close to midnight. But it went around the table for the questions, and I was like two thirds of the way around the table. So I was sitting there realizing that so far no one had. Raise the issue of the war in Chechnya and the human rights violations that, by the way, are horrific echoes of the atrocities that we're seeing come out of Ukraine today. You know, there, sadly, this has been part of the Russian military playbook for quite a long time. At the time, there were awful reports of atrocities in Chechnya and Zachistki, that means, you know, purges essentially, and the like. So I knew that somebody would have to ask Vladimir Putin about this to uphold the dignity, if you will, of the American correspondence. And (laughs) you know, but I was sort of nervous about it. And sure enough, no one had asked by the time it got to me. So I was like, you know, the the brand new correspondent in the robe, like the youngest person there. And I was like, okay, well I gotta ask Putin about (laughs) war crimes in Chechnya. And so I did. And it was fascinating, because he just, his demeanor physically transformed. And he had been very eager to prove himself up until that point. Remember, he was new as well. So he was like, kind of the good KGB officer, bouting memorized facts and figures from his briefing books, very almost sort of trying to project a modern technocrat air to him. Very pleasant, but, you know, kind of enigmatic. But then, I asked him about Chechen. His face literally sort of changed and he became kind of the tough guy talking to me. His tone of voice changed and he said, what do you want me to do? You know, you think I should just sit around and talk about the Quran with them? You know, wow. these are killers essentially. And it was just a very revealing moment, uh, stripping back just a tiny bit of the veneer of Vladimir Putin. And of course, it's that man who would be recognizable today. I will say that the big thing that, that I think Peter and I did not fully understand or appreciate was the extent of Vladimir Putin's empire-building aspirations and his foreign policy, if you will. We wrote a book about it called Kremlin Rising. We did understand at a time when others didn't the nature of his project inside Russia to eliminate the sort of halting vestiges of democracy that had sprung up in the wake of the Soviet collapse. We did understand that he was essentially an authoritarian modernizer, and that that was his project, was to restore centralized power inside the Kremlin and inside Russia. And we saw that very clearly in the the first four years of his tenure when we lived there. We knew he was a nostalgist for the Soviet Union. In fact, we were there when he made probably his most famous statement as a leader, which is to say, calling the breakup of the Soviet Union the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century, which is a breathtaking statement to make, right? Never mind World War II and the Holocaust and the famine in Ukraine, World War I, the Russian Revolution. I mean, it's, it's an astonishing statement. So we understood how he felt, but not the extent and the lengths to which he would eventually go to impose by force his vision of a restored Soviet Union.
0: And we were all kind of fooled that on the surface, they seemed to be so into modernization, Europeanization, luxury brands opening in Moscow, the World Cup. It looked on the surface as if they were heading in a different direction than aspiring to return to the lost Soviet glory.
2: Well, I think to a certain extent, it was clear that Putin had these aspirations. When he thinks of return to the Soviet Union, he thinks of something different than we think of we think of breadlines. we think of there's no toilet paper in this country and it's broken and it doesn't work and he thinks of nuclear superpower and russia was respected in the world and the people inside russia were in line and our greatness was the fact that we were this vast territory the biggest in the world and those sort of things and so i think that part of it is a fundamental misnomer and misunderstanding in the west about putin's vision of resurrecting empire which has as much to do by the way with resurrecting the russian empire that predates the soviet union as it does with the soviet union itself putin is not ideologically akin to the communists. basically you could argue his vision is soviet style authoritarianism and dictatorship without even the veneer of ideology and populism that sustained communism for a long time, even when its promises proved hollow. Vladimir Putin in that sense is much more like a czarist successor, basically autocracy, orthodoxy, nationalism, which was the motto of the Romanovs. In some ways, that's a better fit for Vladimir Putin than the bright shining future conjured, if falsely, by the Soviets.
0: So it's kind of amazing that while the world is transfixed by Ukraine and Russia, comes the announcement that the next book to be published by you and your husband, Peter Baker, is uh, going to be all about the four years of Donald Trump called The Divider. And it just leads us to, you know, the, the two poles of your career, Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump. I can't resist asking you. Would we be here without the past four years? Did the cultivation of essentially pro-Putin or, you know, Russian fan club in the Republican Party, the warm words that Donald Trump always had for Putin, the fact that uh, whatever alleged interference in the 2016 elections went essentially relatively unpunished, could we be here in terms of the boldness of this invasion of Ukraine by Vladimir Putin without the four years of Donald Trump? One of the most extraordinary things of course that's happened in
2: American politics in recent years is the rise of Trump and because of Trump essentially the creation of what you might even call a pro-Putin wing of the Republican Party here in the United States uh, it's something I never thought I would see but the record is so striking and as Peter and I have been going back and you know we're attempting to do sort of the first crack at an actual four-year history of Trump in the White House we feel that it's very important to really record This and it's a sort of a a live action crime scene, if you will. But the consistency with which Donald Trump backed up Putin, denigrated Ukraine, it actually extends across all four years. It wasn't just an isolated plot by Trump that led to his first impeachment to, you know, dig up dirt on Joe Biden, but actually really predates that and goes all the way back to the beginning of his tenure because he adopted Russian talking points from the beginning about Ukraine. There's striking scenes in our book, even in the spring of 2017, in which he is trash-talking Ukraine and, you know, adopting these sort of Russian-originated conspiracy theories about it, saying there's no point in supporting them, that Crimea, which Russia illegally annexed in 2014, you know, what does it matter, that they wanted to be Russian anyways. It's really fascinating how this is actually a through line For Trump. And I do think there's a pretty compelling argument to be made that Putin wouldn't have done this because he wouldn't have needed to do this had Donald Trump remained in power in the United States.
1: But then again, the president he is facing right now is Joe Biden. As someone who has experience of the Cold War, lived through those years and was a U.S. Senator and on the Foreign Relations Committee during the years that the Soviet Empire fell apart, how do you look at his response to this crisis so far? We've been more than a month into the war in Ukraine. Can we say that Biden has succeeded or maybe failed on some of the fronts? What do you think about his response to it?
2: It's, as you said, a conflict that in many ways Biden is prepared for. Remember that. He even has framed through the campaign and his first year in office, his view of international politics as an arena in which there is a a renewed competition between the world's democracies and rising autocratic powers like Russia and China. And so, you know, in a way, it's this sort of horrible, violent fulfillment of the view of the world that biden had sketched out already right so in that sense he was prepared for it he also had the portfolio during the obama administration when he was a vice president he had the portfolio actually of dealing with Ukraine and other countries on the borders of Russia that were very anxious about the prospect of this kind of Russian revanchism under Putin. So he's quite familiar with the issue set here. I think he already had brought as well a focus on intensive renewal of alliances with america's european allies after four years of trump's disparagement of them of nato of the eu he he at various points people forget this like called the eu an enemy and even a greater enemy than russia and china you know this is also consistent with trying to you know get back hand in hand with america's european allies and that's been a focus of his diplomacy so far but he has been so clear and not escalating into direct military confrontation with Russia. And so there's almost a permanent guarantee of frustration. The world has rallied behind Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, and yet Zelensky is always going to be reflecting the frustration of himself and his country that the U.S. won't do more.
0: Well, speaking of not doing more, there have been grumblings on all kinds of levels. We've heard it from some journalists, think tankers, and, you know, some very quietly more behind the scenes from policymakers, grumblings and complaints about Israel's lack of a more robust response to the Ukraine crisis. Do you feel a sense in Washington that Israel is coming off of less than it should as a reliable ally? ally to the United States in terms of it trying to, a certain extent, sit on the fence and not come out and condemn uh, Russia in as bold terms as it could, and to not assist uh, Zelensky with arms in a way that it potentially could.
2: I mean, I I really, I'm hoping you guys would tell me (laughs) what's going (laughs) on there. Absolutely. It seems that way from here in Washington. And I think uh, there is a sense of puzzlement or even, you know, perhaps those who followed it closely you know understand it better than i do but uh, it's certainly notable uh vladimir Zelensky obviously is the first jewish president of ukraine and in fact there's this outrageous rhetoric being used by russia that seems so extraordinary to flip and invert the truth such that he is denazifying ukraine which is goes without saying or it ought to a violent fantasy and exact reversal of the truth at the same time when you have this sort of authoritarian cult of the Z inside Russia and this terrible reports of war crimes in an obvious war of aggression against a neighbor, it's really shocking. And you would think that Israel would be leading the condemnation of something like that given its very identity as a, a modern state and yet obviously that has not been the case so what can you guys tell me about that
1: <laughs> The Israeli government's line basically of, is that because of the Russian presence in Syria it is so complicated for Israel to take a more uh, courageous and moral stand here I wonder how does that sound to the Biden administration because we have heard these grumblings that Ellison mentioned but not directly so far from the White House. We've heard it. I think there was one State Department official who made some comments about Israel not joining the sanctions and members of Congress. I'm not sure, and maybe you could provide us the answer to this question. This is something that also has reached the people close to the president.
2: I would imagine that it is. Obviously, they have been forbearing and haven't made these comments in public. I would be shocked if they ever will, but it's certainly noticed. It's inescapable. How could you not notice it? Again, especially given Israel's identity. And I guess my question is just what is it that Israeli decision makers think Russia would do if there was a more forthcoming condemnation from Israel?
1: Well, for that, I can actually refer you, an and the listeners to our previous episode with Amos Yadlin, the for- former head of Israeli military intelligence, because we asked him that question, are we too afraid of the big, bad Russian bear in Syria? I won't give him the answer, so people will actually listen.
2: Okay, I'll
1: listen. It it was an interesting discussion. I want to ask you more broadly on Israel's place in Washington. The Ukraine story is the biggest one in the news right now. We also have in the background some tensions between the new Israeli government and the Biden administration over Iran. And I think also a sense in general that Israel is much more of a partisan issue in line with other issues of American politics today than the complete bipartisan support that we all remember from past years. How do you see this evolving during the Trump and now Biden presidencies?
2: I think that you're right, that there's been a marked shift. And as you said, Israel really was one of the very few absolutely bipartisan issues for the vast majority of time I have been working in Washington as a journalist. That has changed in recent years. I think the change had begun somewhat before the Trump presidency, but it certainly was accelerated dramatically by the Trump presidency. And really, you know, it was what predated it was, of course, the Iran deal and former Prime Minister Netanyahu's advocacy, his very close cooperation with Republicans in Congress to try to stop that, including speaking to Congress uh, sort of over the heads or attempting to do so over the heads of the White House. That was really something off script that you would not have seen before. Donald Trump didn't create all the trends in, in modern Washington, not by any means, but he often was an accelerant of them. And I think that in the last four years, what you saw was essentially the sifting and sorting. And of course, the close embrace by Netanyahu of Trump, even to the point of campaigning with his image was certainly noticed in Washington. So Democratic support, capital D, Democratic support for Israel has absolutely declined and has been part of a long-term sense that Israel had sort of chosen to get in bed with the Republican Party in the United States. And so, Biden has been a longtime supporter of Israel, has a, many of his top officials, so there's been no you know, outright rupture, but I think the politics are just very different than they were before.
0: I've written a lot. And in general, we've uh, published a lot of articles about the um, changing policy towards Israel within the Democratic Party. People can't stop writing about the squad in general. But I can't resist. I mean, you've written a book about James Baker, and now you're working on one about Donald Trump. And I don't think there's as much talk about the evolution of policy towards Israel in the Republican Party over the past decades. Can you speak to that?
2: I think that's right. You know, it's probably best understood as the rise and takeover of the republican party to a large measure by the uh, evangelical christians and if you look at you know what was the most core support as unlikely or even crazy as it seems of you know a man like donald trump three times married completely non-religious you know nonetheless his most core support has come from evangelical Christians who have become the white evangelical Christians who are are really the heart of the the base of the Republican Party and have driven a lot of the party's focus on supporting Israel and making that almost a, a litmus test within the Republican Party in recent years. And so the plurality and diversity of views that you used to see within the Republican Party doesn't exist anymore on this particular issue and so i think that probably has been the major driver of the transformation sign. the gop one that was very astutely understood and played off of by israeli political leaders certainly a dynamic very familiar to them you know that's just a reality i don't see changing anytime
1: soon in the research that you and peter conducted for your new book on trump did you catch any signs of him maybe looking differently at uh, the issue of Israel and the decisions he made. I'm asking because a few months ago our friend Barack Ravid put out his book on uh, Trump's peace initiative and uh, it included an interview with Trump in which he really trashed Netanyahu and said that the Palestinians wanted peace more than uh, Israel did and some people looked at this and asked, is this the same guy who was president for years and basically gave Netanyahu everything he wanted and went with the Israelis 100% and completely ignored the Palestinians? So did you see any signs of why he had such drastically i think it goes even beyond pro-israeli just complete alliance with netanyahu as president and suddenly he's saying these words now that he's no longer in office
2: our book has a lot of reporting that i hope you'll find interesting around trump and netanyahu and the question of middle east peace and I can, first of all, I can confirm that Barack's great reporting is accurate, but I think the understanding of it might not be accurate. Donald Trump really doesn't care about policy. He doesn't care about Israel. He doesn't care about any of these issues as issues. And so, yes, it's true that he was very mad at Netanyahu at the end of his presidency, but that's not some sort of shift in his ideological thinking. Donald Trump's ideology is Donald Trump. And we told the story of how he got mad at Netanyahu. We tell that story in the book. So certainly I think there's more to add on that subject. But I think it's an accurate portrayal. The question is how people understand it. It's not about an evolution in thinking around Israel itself or security. It's about Donald Trump and Benjamin Netanyahu.
1: It's all personalities. And, you know, this actually brings us back to the man we started the conversation with, Vladimir Putin. Yes. When you look at his relationship with Donald Trump, and we all remember those moments in Helsinki, for example, and that uh, famous uh, press conference. Do you think that Putin looked at Trump through the lens of the KGB operator? What was the dynamic between these two leaders, in your view?
2: I think that Vladimir Putin had a very, very clear read on Donald Trump. And he perhaps saw him at times as a a useful idiot. The record is very clear in both the 2016 and the 2020 campaigns that Russia used its considerable hacking powers and propaganda powers to advance Trump's candidacy if only because Trump's divisive personality and chaos would weaken the United States, and and that's something that very much Russia perceived to be in its interest. But just because they used Donald Trump willingly did not mean that Vladimir Putin had some high estimation of him. And I think that the case officer, the KGB officer in Vladimir Putin understood very clearly what a flawed vessel he had purchased in Donald Trump. And there's this scene in my friend and colleague Fiona Hill's very interesting book about her experiences in the Trump administration in which she talks about being in the audience at that press conference in Helsinki in 2018 and, you know, wanting to faint or, you know, create an episode just to make it stop. (laughs) It was so horrible and Fiona is a Russian speaker, and she heard at the end of it uh, Dmitry Peskov, who, as you know, is Putin's press secretary. He'd been there ever since I was there 20 years ago, by the way, one of the only original surviving aides to Putin. Putin walks off the stage and turns to Peskov and says to him in Russian, audible enough, Fiona, to hear that the whole thing was bullshit. You know, I think that really kind of sums it up. Like, you know, Donald Trump is the BS artist. And of course, Vladimir Putin understands that.
0: Susan, since 2016, we've learned to never say never. And therefore, I have to ask you the question of what you foresee in terms of American foreign policy, if there is a possible Donald Trump run for the presidency and victory in 2024.
2: Never say never is probably the way to look at these things. I think that people are both under and overestimating the risk from this. Underestimating in the sense that this would be not a repeat of the first Trump term, but something probably much more dangerous, disruptive, and lasting. Somebody said to me the other day, and I'm hoping to incorporate this into the framing of our book when it comes out in September, but the scene in Jurassic Park when the Velociraptor learns to open the door. (laughs) The Trump administration is a story over four years of the Velociraptor learning to open the door of American government and understanding in some way much better than at the beginning, certainly, how it works, how to push the levers of it. Donald Trump isn't going to be hiring Jim Mattis as his defense secretary and H.R. McMaster as his national security advisor if he comes back to power. And so the risks of really disruptive permanent actions by the United States would go way, way up In the world. As you know, John Bolton has said that in a Trump second term, he would have blown up NATO. I think the record is quite clear that that's where he wanted to go, that he would have withdrawn U.S. troops and from the alliance with South Korea and Asia. I think these are risks that are actually underappreciated right now. But, you know, the flip side is also important to understand Donald Trump is a loser. He twice lost the popular vote in the United States. He was removed from the presidency after just one term. He faces escalating questions about his actions uh, connected with after the election and the big lie about it being stolen. He has been disgraced by supporting Vladimir Putin literally as this invasion force was rolling in to Ukraine, he was calling Putin a genius. And so he's also very old and, you know, would be in his 80s in another term. So it's also possible that the polls are overstating the possibility of him returning to power. So I'll leave you
0: with that glass half full glass half empty portrait. And with that terrifying dinosaur image.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Definitely going to be thinking about that one. Susan Glaser, thank you so much for joining us and really for this fascinating conversation. And we are looking forward to the Israel scoops in your upcoming book with Peter Baker.
2: All right. Well, we'll come back and talk with you
0: about them. Thank you so much. And that wraps things up for Haaretz Weekend. Thank you to Susan Glasser, our guest. Thanks to our producer, Aaron Ehrlich, and to our editor, Maya Ben-Nissan. Tune in on Monday for Haaretz Weekly with Amir Tibon. And until next time, I'm Alison Kaplan-Somer. Shalom from Tel Aviv.